1: In mid-July of 2019, three intrepid explorers who had a deep appreciation of nature and love of adventure ventured into northern British Columbia to make the most of all the region has to offer. A young couple set out on a road trip to explore northern British Columbia, the Yukon, and Alaska. And a seasoned biologist with some extra time on his hands decided to head further north than originally planned to take in the beautiful scenery. Little did these three travelers know that in mid-July of 2019, the highways of Northern British Columbia were much more dangerous than usual and their trips would be tragically cut short. Join me now as we take a look into a string of crimes that struck fear into the hearts of countless Canadians and forever changed how safe people feel on the country's highways, you'll learn about the circumstances behind a nationwide manhunt that caused many communities across the country to be on high alert, and that may ultimately leave us more questions than answers. In July of 2019, 23-year-old Lucas Fowler and 24-year-old China Deese set out on a three-week-long dream road trip that would give them the opportunity to travel through northern British Columbia and the Yukon before finally arriving in Alaska. Northern British Columbia encompasses over 500,000 vast kilometers of stunning natural beauty and an astonishing array of diverse geography. The region is larger than California, extending up to the Yukon-Alaska border and incorporating sweeping glaciated valleys, volcanic rock formations, towering mountain ranges, and mist-shrouded coast. With more than 60 national, provincial, and marine parks to explore, Lucas and China would have had their pick of distinctive ecosystems and unique cultural heritage. The region is high on many adventurers' to-do list, as its fewer 500,000 residents make the area one of the least populated places in all of North America. A person can head off into the woods and travel for days, even weeks or months, and not stumble upon another human being. Since meeting in Croatia two years prior, Lucas, who was from Australia, and China, who was from North Carolina, had been nearly inseparable. With their shared love of travel and new cultural experiences, they embraced adventure and had already visited several countries together. Their trip to Northern British Columbia had been long in the planning, and the pair was keen to get on the open road. China had spent time with Lucas at a cow branding ranch he was working at to save money for their trip. While in Canada, Lucas purchased an old blue Chevrolet van and refurbished it so it could serve as a camper for their adventure to Alaska. This would be much more cost-effective than staying at hotels and eating out for the duration of their long road trip. Not long after they left, the old van started acting up. This required Lucas and China to often have to wait patiently for the vehicle's flooded engine to drain. The pair refused to let this small issue get them down, with many people reportedly seeing Lucas and China smiling and having fun parked on the side of the road, making the most of their forced breaks. On July 13th, Lucas and China stopped for fuel in Fort Nelson, British Columbia. Fort Nelson is a small town of less than 5,000 residents, located in northeastern British Columbia. At mile 300 of the Alaska Highway, also known as Highway 97, the young couple was slowly but surely making their way to Alaska in spite of the mechanical issues they were having with their van. Surveillance cameras by the pumps at the gas station captured Lucas as he filled up the van with gas, and China was seen cleaning the van's windshield, likely scrubbing hard to clean off the thick coating of bugs. That would have accumulated during the long drive. The camera also caught Lucas and China in a loving embrace, smiling and enjoying themselves even during the mundane task of fueling up their vehicle, a true testament to how much they loved traveling and being with each other. The next day, on July 14, 2019, Lucas and China's vehicle once again broke down along the Alaska Highway, this time, 20 kilometers south of Liard Hot Springs and close to British Columbia's northern border with the Yukon. Many witnesses saw them pulled off on the side of the road, and a few of them even stopped to help. At approximately 3 p.m., Curtis Broughton drove by and noticed the couple. He was a mechanic, so he stopped to see if he could lend a hand. Curtis noticed Lucas and China seemed like they kind of had it under control. They were having a picnic, waiting for the van to unflood, I guess. After he had determined they were fine and didn't need his help, Curtis headed on his way. Sandra Broughton also saw Lucas and China on the side of the road and pulled over to offer assistance. Similar to Curtis's experience, Sandra ascertained the pair didn't need her help. In fact, they seemed unfazed, laughing about the inconvenience and their car troubles. Sandra said her goodbyes, and left the good-natured and positive Lucas and China waiting for their van to start. Little did anyone know Lucas and China only had hours left to live. At around 7 a.m. on July 15th, a highway worker discovered the bodies of Lucas and China in a ditch by their broken down van. The couple had been shot to death. The van's back doors were left open. Its windows had been shattered. It didn't take long for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to identify the young couple. And within a couple of days, the RCMP publicly confirmed Lucas and China had been murdered.
0: I'm here today to give you an update with respect to the investigation into the deaths of Lucas Fowler and China Deese, which occurred in Northern British Columbia last week. The investigation into the double homicide of 23-year-old Lucas Fowler and 24-year-old China Deese continues to progress. Investigators from the North District and BCRCMP major crime units are continuing their efforts. We can now confirm that China and Lucas were the victims of gun violence and that their van, a 1986 blue Chevrolet van with Alberta plates, was owned by Locust Fowler and was being used by the couple to explore Northern British Columbia. Investigators are working through a number of tips and tasks, including speaking with individuals who saw or spoke to the couple, analyzing forensic and digital evidence, along with reviewing hours of CCTV and dash cam video footage. The number and types of specialized services and units and investigators continues to fluctuate based on investigative need.
1: On July 19th, The police informed the media the body of a man had been found in northern British Columbia, around two kilometers from a burning red and gray Dodge truck and camper located on Highway 37, just south of the Stikine River Bridge near Deese Lake. Although the RCMP did not disclose how the man was killed, they were quick to link the murder to Lucas and China's case, even though The new crime scene was located roughly 470 kilometers from where Lucas and China had been killed. The authorities stated there were similar circumstances between the three murders that strongly suggested they were all connected. Police reached out to a forensic artist and a composite sketch of the unidentified man was made. On July 22nd, this sketch was released to the public. Within two days, the man was identified as Leonard Dick from Vancouver, British Columbia. At around the same time as Lucas and China had been on the road trip, 64-year-old Leonard Dick was traveling between Terence and Stewart. At the last minute, he decided he had time to extend his trip and headed further north through the Dease Lake area. As a botanist who lectured at the University of British Columbia, and who specialized in seaweed and algae. Leonard had a deep love for nature. This translated into a passion for camping and the outdoors. He had been on several other holidays to Northern British Columbia for car camping road trips with his wife and two sons, and he had even been known to tour the region on his own in the past. Therefore, it surprised no one that Leonard tacked some additional solo camping time onto his trip. An examination of the burnt-out Dodge truck and camper linked it to two teens named Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski. After an extensive search of the area, the RCMP determined their bodies were not in the vicinity. McLeod and Schmigelski were declared missing persons and an investigation into their whereabouts was launched. The RCMP learned 19-year-old McLeod An 18-year-old Schmigelski were from Port Alberni, British Columbia. Port Alberni, with its 18,000 residents, is located on the west side of Vancouver Island. The beautiful tourist town is bordered by the Beaufort Mountain Range to the east and the Pacific Ocean to the west. Port Alberni's economy has relied heavily on commercial fishing and logging for decades. But given the economic downturn in these industries and the increased regulations introduced by the Canadian government on natural resources, the economy has been trying to reposition itself as a tourist destination. Despite these efforts, though, the job opportunities for young people are still limited. McLeod and Schmigelski had been best friends since elementary school, and they even attended the 8th Avenue Learning Center together. After they graduated high school, like many people in Port Alberni, the pair struggled to find well-paying or challenging work. They eventually ended up taking on positions at the local Walmart, doing the graveyard shift five nights a week. In early July, the teens told their families they were going to leave town to find better-paying jobs. Schmigelski's father, Alan, said his son told him they were headed to Alberta to look for work, and that they'd likely be out of touch for a while. He expected the pair was going to Red, Deer, Alberta to meet up with his son's cousin. Young Schmigelski had been staying with his grandmother, Carol Starkey, for two years, and she told police her grandson and McLeod were actually headed to Whitehorse in the Yukon in search of more promising jobs. Regardless of the conflicting stories, one thing was for sure. On July 12th, McLeod and Schmigelski said their goodbyes to their families and hit the road in their red and gray Dodge truck and camper. Then, on July 19th, their truck and camper was found abandoned and burning, roughly two kilometers from where Leonard Dick's body was discovered. Schmigelski's father worried the two young men could have witnessed Leonard's murder and then felt the need to hide away somewhere to escape the killer. This theory was soon called into question when Leonard and Schmigelski were spotted on July 21st in Cold Lake, Alberta, a small city in northeastern Alberta, close to 2,000 kilometers from where their burnt-out truck and camper had been located, and Leonard's body was found. Tommy Stequa, a resident of Cold Lake, reported he had unknowingly helped the two teens. He said he had aided them By freeing a 2011 Toyota RAV4 from the mud behind Cold Lake Hospital, he chatted with the two young men for approximately 20 minutes while he hooked up their SUV to his truck and pulled it free. At the time, he had no idea he was helping two people who had been reported missing in extremely suspicious circumstances or that the Toyota RAV4 the two teenagers were driving matched the missing vehicle used by Leonard Dick during his road trip in Northern British Columbia. Later, Tommy saw video footage of McLeod and Schmigelski that showed them in a hardware store doing some shopping. The video was captured in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, the same day Tommy had helped free McLeod and Schmigelski's SUV. The store they were seen at is situated roughly 150 kilometers from where the Cold Lake resident had assisted the stranded motorists. Tommy's friends urged him to contact the police and share the details of the incident. At the time, Tommy had no idea how lucky he was to be alive. On July 23rd, the RCMP shocked everyone who was following the case when they announced,
0: Today I'm here to request public assistance in locating suspects in connection to the Northern British Columbia investigations. As a result of the information and the appeal to public that we made yesterday in connection with the Dees Lake investigation and the disappearance of Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski, we were able to confirm new information and issue a new plea. For the past few days, investigators have been focusing their efforts on locating Cam and Briar given that their vehicle and camper had been located on fire and the two were considered missing. Investigators have also been able to confirm that Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski have left British Columbia and have been spotted in northern Saskatchewan. We believe that they're likely continuing to travel. Though we don't have a possible destination, we can now confirm that they were last seen driving a grey Toyota RAV4. Given these latest developments, Cam and Briar are no longer considered missing. The RCMP are now considering Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski as suspects. We're asking for the public, if you spot Briar or Cam, consider them dangerous. Do not approach. Take no action and call immediately 911. In order to assist our efforts to locate these two men, we are releasing new images taken recently. Thanks to the public yesterday, we had no information as to CAM and Briar's whereabouts. And because we made the appeal yesterday, we now have new information where we've confirmed that they were seen in Northern British Columbia. We've been able to confirm that information within the last 24 hours. And I have been receiving new information. Honestly, before I just stepped up on the stage, new information's still coming in. So, you know, these investigations are, are very quick moving. And yesterday we had information that we didn't, that we now, we have different information than we have today.
1: The investigators and the media began a deep dive into McLeod and Schmigelski's life. Their hobbies were called into question. As the pair was said, to share a love of war games, hunting and camouflage, and neo-Nazism. Their gaming and social media activities were also held up to scrutiny. McLeod and Schmigelsky were avid gamers and frequent players of shooting games, including one called Russian Battlegrounds. A fellow gamer told the press, Schmigelsky admired the Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler and often sang his praise online on their many social media accounts McLeod and schmigelsky shared images involving the soviet hammer and sickle icon far-right politics nazi imagery and sexualized japanese anime both the teenagers facebook pages were also linked to an account that used an adapted soviet flag as one of their images schmigelsky's facebook account had also shared a post that read, Guns don't kill people, it's mostly the bullets. The RCMP also said they were looking into a photograph of Schmigelski, sent around online, of the team decked out in military gear with a swastika armband. In the photo, he was also holding an airsoft rifle and sporting a gas mask. On top of the information about McLeod and Schmigelski's problematic hobbies and social media activity, many Port Alberni residents came forward and shared their insights into their actions and character. A witness suggested the crimes might have been premeditated. The Port Alberni resident claimed he had seen Schmigelski and McLeod buying a hunting rifle from a local gun store just before they left town. Considering Canada's strict weapons laws, it had been first assumed the teens must have illegally obtained the weapon used during their killing spree. The witness told reporters, I watched as the clerk shared his expertise and advised on the best cartridges to use, matched a hunting rifle to their budgets, and made the sale. Those closer to McLeod and Schmigelski also offered their thoughts on the young men. Brandon McHale, a friend of McLeod's, described him as a happy but shy person who didn't have a lot of friends but was really funny. Lisa Lucas told reporters her family had lived just a few doors down from the Schmigelskys and her son had played with Schmigelsky all the time when they were growing up. She said he was a nice kid, very quiet, but after a while he just stopped coming around. According to her son, the reason why Schmigelski was around less and less was because he had become consumed with video games. Schmigelsky’s friends were turned off by Schmigelski's attraction to violent video games and by how serious he took them. In fact, when they were playing video games together, Schmigelski would say things like, Could you imagine if this was real? As a result, His neighborhood friends stopped spending time with Schmigelski. Madison Hempstead of Port Alberni told Global News she had been Schmigelski's classmate during their grade 7 year, and her experiences with him had often been upsetting. She said, I don't want to be rude, but he was kind of like a weird kid. I know there were times he would tell me and my friends ways he wanted to kill us, and then himself, Pretty detailed stuff. At the time, we all just thought he was trying to be funny. Although other classmates of McLeod and Schmigelski described similar encounters, none of the Port Alberni residents could remember either of the young men actually getting into any trouble or having any run-ins with the police. Breyer's father told Australia's 60 Minutes that last year he had bought his son a $600 airsoft rifle at Christmas. He said it was an attempt to get him away from playing video games and out into the woods with his buddies. Of course, the parents of McLeod and Schmigelski were devastated when their sons moved from the category of missing persons to that of suspects in three murders. Keith McLeod, Cam's father, issued a statement that emphasized His son was a good young man and stressed that the McLeod family was extremely worried about Cam. He wrote, This is what I know. Cam is a kind, considerate, caring young man who always has been concerned about other people's feelings. We hope that Cam will come home to us safely so we can all get to the bottom of this story. Briar's father, Alan, told Global News. I just don't want to offend Cam's family, okay? I know they're hurting as much as I am. All I can say is that my son did not have any real guns. My son did not have a vehicle. My son does not know how to drive. He was very introverted, and he was very heavily into video games. When he came home and worked for me for the summer, I didn't pay him. I just had a very expensive, custom-made computer made for him, which he was quite content with. You know, he wasn't into the ones where you had your machine gun and go shooting people. He was more into strategy. You move your troops here and there. They never got into trouble with the law. They never got into fights. You know, they were just hanging out, having a good time. They weren't scrappers. They weren't cursors. They were just everyday regular kids. Alan also told Australia's 60 Minutes that his son had been very angry ever since his mother had took him away from him. When he was just five years old he said he got very little attention living with his mother and eventually moved in with his grandmother they only reconnected a few years ago Breyer's dad said his son was raised by youtube and video games and so one of the largest manhunts in canadian history began after it became clear that mcleod and schmigelski were responsible for the killing spree in northern british columbia and we're now on the run across the country. On July 23rd, the RCMP announced Leonard Dick's burnt-out Toyota RAV4 was found near the Fox Lake Cree Nation Reserve, which is close to Gillam, a town in northern Manitoba situated approximately 1,000 kilometers from Winnipeg. The police also formally charged McLeod and Schmigelski with the second-degree murder of Leonard Dick and again named the teens as prime suspects in the murder of Lucas Fowler and China Deese. After finding McLeod and Schmigelski's getaway vehicle in the area and receiving two eyewitness accounts that placed them in Gillum, the RCMP stepped up their search, with reports of the manhunt spreading across the globe. The RCMP deployed its emergency response team, crisis negotiation team, drones, canine units, and hundreds of officers and other support personnel to Gillam and the surrounding area, attempting to locate the fugitives. Gillam's population of only 1,265 is mainly comprised of local Hydro Dam employees and their families. With the community's small size, there is only one road that leads in and out of town. Police put up roadblocks on this road, as well as throughout Gillam, However, since they had not received reports of a stolen vehicle, the RCMP believed the young men were likely hiding in the area or traveling on foot. Police went door-to-door in Gillum and the Fox Cree Nation Reserve looking for McLeod and Schmigelski and asking residents if they had seen anyone who resembled the teens or noticed anything suspicious. Police patrols were also set up hoping to help reassure frightened citizens that everything possible was being done to protect them and their families. By July 27th, the RCMP had even brought in the military for assistance. The Canadian Air Force's CC-130H Hercules aircraft was key in the search because its thermal imaging could help locate McLeod and Schmigelski, even in the dense underbrush. Jack Shonley A former police officer told the media that given the heavily forested, dense, and swampy terrain, McLeod and Schmigelski could be within feet of the searchers, and the authorities would not even know it. Shonley said it happens all the time, where police officers find themselves on a containment, and at the end of the day, the suspects were within feet of them, and they just couldn't see it. Using infrared detection can assist with mitigating this. It helps identify movement from a heat source and pinpoints specific areas that should be more carefully searched. When no signs of McLeod or Schmigelsky were found, even with thermal imaging, the police started to worry the pair had changed their appearance. Perhaps a local had assisted them in leaving the area without even being aware that they were helping fugitives escape. The RCMP reached out to the public and reassured them not to be afraid and to come forward if this had been the case. It was crucial to pass on any information to the police. Finally, after four long, unsuccessful days combing the Gillam area, the RCMP received a tip that shifted their focus to York Landing, Manitoba a small community located 200 kilometers southwest of Gillum. Members of the Bear Clan Patrol, a volunteer safety patrol group that supports First Nations, reported seeing two white males who matched the descriptions of the teens sifting through garbage at the local transfer station. The RCMP jumped into action, sending numerous officers and other assets to the area. After a thorough search, the RCMP was unable to find any trace of McCloudish Migelski. Nine days into the large scale search for the teens in Manitoba, the RCMP announced they would be scaling back the operation. The team had inspected over 11,000 square kilometers and searched more than 500 homes in Gillam, York Landing, and the surrounding area. The police stressed that although their presence would be dialed down, they would remain in the area and continue a smaller-scale hunt for the suspected killers. During the last week of July, there was a barrage of sightings of the duo in Ontario, Canada. The Ontario Provincial Police in northeastern Ontario reported they had received over 30 unconfirmed sightings of McLeod and Schmigelski. Two of the most promising sightings were near Iron Bridge and in Casing. On July 30th, in Ironbridge, Ontario, which is located almost 2,500 kilometers from where McLeod and Schmigelski were last seen in Gillam, Manitoba, a witness called in and reported seeing the teens, but gave little other information. As a result, little could be done to follow up on that lead. The next day, in Kapuskasing, roughly a seven-hour drive from Ironbridge, a flag person, who was monitoring traffic during construction, contacted the RCMP. The witness reported they had seen a suspicious white vehicle driven through a construction zone on Highway 11 around 10.30 a.m., and that the two occupants in the vehicle matched the description of McLeod and Schmigelski. Numerous RCMP resources were sent to the area, but the fugitives were not found. A police spokesperson reiterated to the public, they should not approach anyone they believed to be McLeod and Schmigelski. Instead, they should attempt to obtain as much information as possible, such as a vehicle description and a plate number, and immediately call 911. As panic spread across the country, the scaled-down RCMP search for the fugitives continued in Manitoba. A breakthrough in the case occurred, on August 2nd, when a tour guide informed the RCMP, he had spotted a blue sleeping bag at the edge of the Nelson River, near where it enters Hudson Bay. The sighting prompted an aerial search of the river. A damaged aluminum rowboat was located on the northern shore of the river, roughly 65 kilometers northeast of Gillam, the community where the RCMP had spent days looking for the suspects. Once the team reached the boat, they explored the surrounding areas and located other items which the RCMP linked to the suspects. The damaged boat and other undisclosed items were found around 9 kilometers northeast from where Leonard Dick's torched Toyota RAV4 had been discovered. On July 23, an RCMP dive team conducted a thorough underwater search hoping to find additional evidence that could help locate McLeod and Schmigelsky. However, nothing more of interest was found, and the police admitted they had no further dive scheduled. The manhunt had once again seemingly reached a dead end. Unexpectedly, on August 7th, the RCMP held an impromptu press conference and shared some surprising news. McLeod and Schmigelsky were no longer on the run. British Columbia RCMP Assistant Commissioner Kevin Hackett made the following announcement.
2: At approximately 10 a.m., RCMP officers located two male bodies in the dense brush. This was within one kilometer from where the items linked to the suspects were found. This is approximately eight kilometers from where Mr. Dick's burnt RAV4 vehicle was located. Manitoba RCMP has confirmed that the autopsies are being scheduled in Winnipeg to confirm their identities and to determine their cause of death. While we are still waiting for the definitive confirmation of the identities of the two deceased men, we believe that they are in fact the individuals that we were searching for. We still need to ensure that our investigative findings, whether it's statements, evidentiary timelines, Physical or digital evidence continues to confirm our investigative theory and eliminates any other possibilities or suspects. Until that is completed, we will not conclude this file. Regarding the motive, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to um, ascertain uh, definitively what the motive was. Obviously, we will not have the opportunity to speak with these individuals. And again, the examination of the area where they were located today is still being uh, dealt with and searched. So there may be additional items that uh, could help in that regard, identifying a motive, etc. But uh, we don't have that information yet. There is significant evidence that links both crime scenes together. We want to bring back all of the information and all the evidence that we have. Our investigators will go through that meticulously and we'll be in a better position perhaps in the future, the near future, to talk about all of the linkages perhaps that existed. But suffice to say, there was significant evidence that linked our suspects to both crime scenes.
1: On August 12th, the public learned... An autopsy had been conducted on McLeod and Schmigelsky. The findings confirmed the bodies were indeed of those of the two teens. Also, the Manitoba medical examiner determined that both McLeod and Schmigelski had died from self-inflicted gunshot wounds. This was in line with the evidence at the scene, as two handguns were located near the bodies Ballistic tests were also being performed on the guns to see if the weapons matched those used in the murders. Also, the remains suggested that although the fugitives had been dead for a number of days, they had been alive and successfully hiding out from the authorities for numerous days after they had last been seen alive. With the suspects involved in the three horrific murders now dead, many people were left wondering, now what? As BC RCMP Assistant Commissioner Kevin Hackett made clear during the press conference, the investigation will continue in order to build an airtight case. The police still believe it is important to prove the guilty parties were in fact McLeod and Schmigelsky and that no one else was involved in any of the crimes. On the afternoon of August 12th, the RCMP released the following statement. Investigators are now assessing all items located in Manitoba, along with the previous findings related to the three Northern BC homicide investigations, in order to gain more clarity into what happened to Leonard Dick, Lucas Fowler, and China Deese. The assessment will review all of the investigative findings to date, whether it is statements, Evidentiary Timelines, Physical or Digital Evidence, and the BC RCMP have also engaged our Behavioral Analysis Unit. The BC RCMP commits that once we have completed that review, within the next few weeks, we will be providing the families with an update with respect to the totality of the investigations and then releasing the information publicly. After the investigation is completed, the case will then be handed off to the B.C. Prosecution Service and it will decide how to proceed. When the media asked a spokesperson what was expected to happen with the case, he stated, we don't charge dead people. Subsequently, the second-degree murder charges for the killing of Leonard Dick would be stayed and McLeod and Schmigelsky would never be charged with the murder of Lucas Fowler and China Deese. With McLeod and Schmigelsky's death, a question haunting many of those involved with the case at first appeared destined to go unanswered, why would two seemingly harmless teens who set off to seek better job prospects instead go on a killing spree? And murder three unsuspecting tourists? Because the teens were dead, the RCMP admitted the teen's motive would be extremely difficult to ascertain. But on August 19th, the public learned of additional evidence in the case that could one day answer some of the burning questions surrounding McLeod and Schmigelski's motive. It was leaked to the press. The teens left behind a video on a cell phone found at the scene of their suicide. The suspect's next of kin had been shown roughly 30 seconds of the footage, which reportedly outlined McLeod and Schmigelski's wishes for their remains. They bid goodbye to family members and detailed a last will and testament. Alan Schmigelski, Breyer's father, retained a lawyer and fought in the courts for weeks to gain access to the video, as he was not officially listed as his son's next of kin He was not initially given access to the footage. His lawyer, Sarah Lehman, explained Alan was hoping the video could offer him some much-needed emotional closure. After finally viewing the video, Breyer's father seemed to be no closer to coming to terms with his son's action and death. His lawyer shared the following. As you can imagine, my client's reaction to the video was a very emotional one. He reacted. In the same way we would expect any father to react to these types of circumstances it is an unimaginable experience and something that no parent ever hopes to find themselves in unfortunately my client is going through it and it's been very very hard for him but i hope he is able to get some sense of closure at least in viewing the video for now the police have insisted that McLeod and Schmigelski's family members do not discuss the content of the video, with the police even using non-disclosure agreements to ensure the family's silence. Although it is unknown if the video contains any mention of what might have compelled the teens to carry out the killing spree, there is at least a glimmer of hope that one day there might be some answers. The RCMP has said, They will update the public and the victim's family about the content of the video once the investigation into the murders has been concluded. Waiting for answers, though, must be extremely difficult for all of those who have lost loved ones. The trio of murders that rocked Canada in July of 2019 will have a long-lasting impact on the communities directly affected. Many residents of Port Alberni were shocked that teens from their quiet community could be involved in such heinous crimes. Port Alberni Mayor Sherry Minion stated, As a community, we're thinking of the victims and their families and the families of the boys. I can't imagine what these local people must be going through right now. My thoughts are also with the families of the victims who have suffered unimaginable loss. This has been a tragic series of events, and it has been a difficult time for everyone, including the residents of our community. The Port Alberni mayor also drew attention to how difficult the ongoing manhunt must have been for Gillam and the Fox Lake Cree Nation Reserve. She said, Our thoughts are also with the community of Gillam and the neighboring areas in Manitoba, As they start to return to their regular lives. What they have gone through over the past few weeks is hard to imagine. Gillum Mayor Dwayne Foreman confirmed that his community was relieved now that the suspects have been captured. He said he felt absolute relief for the communities of Gillum and Fox Lake Cree Nation. It's been stressful. It's been a roller coaster up and down. I myself am glad that this has finally come to a conclusion. The mayor hopes that life will now return to normal in their once peaceful community and that the residents will be able to recapture their feelings of security. The families of the victims, Lucas Fowler, China Deese, and Leonard Dick, will have an unimaginably difficult time navigating the loss of their beloved family members. Sheila China's mother, encapsulated the heartbreaking loss of her daughter and how it will continue to affect her family. Each day gets harder because the more I'm watching, the words brutal and violently are haunting me. While I want to know the details, it's not going to change my outcome. They always say a mom can only be as happy as their saddest child and I have three broken kids. To honor Lucas Fowler and China Deese, their loved ones have celebrated their lives and the lasting impact they had on all the lives they touched. A memorial was held for China in Charlotte, North Carolina. Instead of sending flowers, her family asked mourners to make donations to Joni and Friends Family Retreats, a Christ-centered organization China volunteered at that provides assistance to people with disabilities. With these donations, the help China has given people in need will continue on after her death. China's obituary highlighted how the young woman was a loving, free spirit who traveled the world. And that with her positive outlook on life, she unfailingly brought joy to all that came in contact with her. China's family also acknowledged the loving relationship China and Lucas shared. They noted the pair had been expected to marry and that China and her beloved boyfriend had bonded over a shared love of travel. Stephen Fowler, Lucas's father, who works as a New South Wales homicide inspector, gave an emotional eulogy at his son's funeral in Sydney, Australia, that honored the love his son and China shared. He reflected, Our dear China, we can no longer hug our boy. Please hold him tight. You are in our hearts forever. We're so happy that Lucas and China found each other and had such a great time traveling together. Making new friends and just milking every last drop of fun out of life. Although China and Lucas had separate funerals in different countries, an ocean apart, the love the young adventurous couple shared was a bond that teaches those left behind how to love life and others with all of their hearts. Much the same as those close to Lucas Fowler and China Deese. Leonard Dick's friends and loved ones have stressed his remarkable contributions and how he has enriched many lives. The 64-year-old botany lecturer at the University of British Columbia spent his career studying the ecology of seaweed. In a statement released by the university, Leonard's friend and colleague, Patrick Martone, stressed Leonard's contributions to the department and his field. He noted, Leonard's work with the students in the classroom made him truly irreplaceable. His passion for learning about bizarre and beautiful organisms that few people ever get to see inspired our students to feel the same passion and awe. In fact, the many students Leonard had inspired over the years will continue his legacy in their future work. Leonard leaves behind his wife Helen of 30 years and their two sons. In an attempt to offer some relief to the grief-stricken family, a GoFundMe page has been started in the loving memory of Leonard. The campaign has already raised over $20,000. Doris Fleck, Dick's sister, has tried to focus on the good times and how Leonard positively impacted the lives of those around him. She said, we cannot change what happened, but we can remember Len for his dry sense of humor, his generosity and love. Len and I were close from a young age. He taught me so much about music, literature, art, and science. He cared deeply about his family, his friends, and his work. He brought joy to so many people, and it is these memories that will last. Through those they inspired, with their love of life and their ability to live each day to its fullest, Lucas Fowler, China Deese, and Leonard Dick will be remembered long after their lives were cut tragically short on the highways of Northern British Columbia in the summer of 2019. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts The West Side Fairy Tales. Why would you trade for freedom? For glory. For happiness.
2: The Internet's Scariest Horror Dark Fiction Podcast returns October 4th.
1: I think you would study yourself.
2: Journey to the shaded hills of West Virginia, the agave fields of the Guadalajara countryside, and the remote reaches of space for ten new stories of horrid sacrifice, self-destruction, and madness. You seem like the type Tune in the first Friday of every month and see if you're brave enough to handle the Westside Fairy Tales. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. You will bring me hearts. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com
1: And Beyond the Rainbow
0: Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of a new podcast called
1: Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBT Community. In this podcast, we cover cases not so well-known, as well as more notorious ones. A lot of interesting info mixed with a little bit of snart, but always focusing on the empathy I feel for the victims. Please give us a listen on your favorite podcast app, push subscribe, and remember, it's not a crime to be gay.
2: Unless you're a murderer.
1: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness and on Twitter, using the handle at Madness And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funk You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerror records.com.au/slash GE.
2: I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run